You're listening to episode 119 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. What's up, storytellers? We jumped past our 100th iTunes review. Oh my gosh, thank you so much to all of you who left a rating and a review for 88 Cups of Tea. I know it's a whole process to get through all the steps and it means the world to us that you took the time. Seriously, thank you so much to each and every one of you. I also wanted to say a special thank you to our listeners with the usernames Court330 and CT McCarthy for their recent reviews. Court330 gave us five stars and she wrote, Love it. Such an uplifting podcast about creativity. Yin Cheng is so enthusiastic and a great interviewer. I love listening to her. And CT McCarthy wrote, Thank you and gave us five stars and continued to write, Yin Cheng provides the shots of motivation I need to keep writing. Her upbeat, authentic personality shines in these interviews, and the group Facebook page is a welcoming community of fellow writers striving for success. Frankly, I don't know what I would do without 88 Cups of Tea. I'm very grateful for this wonderful resource, and I hope others find it and utilize it as well. Thank you, Yin. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much to the both of you for taking the time out of your day to leave such a thoughtful review. I am truly so honored to have listeners like you in our community. I don't know how I got so lucky. Before we introduce today's special guest, I have an exciting announcement. I'll be moderating a panel called Seven Asian American Authors You Should Be Reading, hosted by the New York Public Library and features authors Stacey Lee, Rhoda Baeza, Sona Charapatra, Emily X. R. Pan, Karuna Riazi, and two of our very own 88 Cups of Tea guests, Heidi Heilig and Jenny Han. It's all happening in my hometown in New York this Saturday, February 17th at 1 p.m. at the Chatham Square Library location. For all of my New York and East Coast listeners, I would love to meet you and see you there. Again, that's this Saturday. February 17th at 1 p.m. at the Chatham Square Library location. If you join us, make sure to come up and say hi after we finish the panel so I know you're a part of our 88 Cups of Tea community. If you're unable to make it but would still love to watch us, we'll be live streaming from New York Public Library's Chatham Square Library's Facebook page. On February 17th at 1 p.m., make sure to head over to facebook.com slash Chatham Square Library to watch us live. Now on to our guest, I'm so excited to have Katherine Locke on the show. Katherine is the author of her Sydney Taylor Honor Award-winning debut young adult novel, The Girl with the Red Balloon. In today's episode, we dive into how Katherine's story for The Girl with the Red Balloon was influenced by her grandfather. She shares advice for writers new to the historical fantasy genre, and we discuss how technology plays a crucial role when writing historical fiction, and how to tell a story that requires emotionally heavy research and overcoming the emotional exhaustion. Catherine walks us through incredibly helpful tips on drafting from the first draft to the second draft and how to work through the dreaded middle of the manuscript. You'll learn why Catherine always tosses out the first draft and how she accepted this as part of her process. We also touch on different ways of brainstorm, how to simultaneously balance writing for different genres and age groups, and why it's necessary to have a writing community. Be sure to check out Catherine's show notes page to download the exclusive writing prompt she created for our community. Head over to her show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash Catherine dash lock and scroll all the way to the bottom till you see a box that says writing prompt. 
Catherine is also taking over our Instagram account today and will be showing us behind the scenes glimpses of her writing life from her local coffee shop where she gets her writing done and how she gets through writer's block, special footage from her research trip in Budapest, and so much more. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at 88 Cups of Tea to catch Catherine's takeover. And we're also so excited to do a giveaway of Catherine's book. So be sure to follow us for more information. And now we're going to get right into our chat. This is so crazy. We're talking. I know. It's been a really long time. This has been coming together. I am so excited to have you on. Thank you. I'm so excited for you. There's so many amazing things happening for you. And it's just it's pretty badass just to see you getting out there and people reading your book and it touching their hearts and moving them fills us with pride. Oh, thank you so much. I feel like 88 Cups of Tea and the Facebook group has been with me this whole ride. And Aww. that's been really awesome. You can make me cry. That's my goal. I'm going to try. <laughs> well, you just succeeded. That means a lot. You've been there consistently for the group who somehow always managed to always show up. Thank you again, for real. It's a really wonderful community. I think it's really hard to foster that online. Those types of spaces can become negative really quickly. And I love how much positivity and support that people genuinely care about each other's progress every week and about listening to each other. It's been really wonderful. It's a really wonderful space. (laughs) And it's not just because of our members. That stuff has to come from the start of the space. And I think when you founded that and you really injected your ideals into it, and that shows in how we interact with each other. Where's my tissue box? For real. (laughs) I feel like I'm watching an episode of This Is Us right now. I don't know how people watch that show. They're always talking about how much they're crying. I'm just like, make me cry. Yes, make me cry. (laughs) If there's an episode I'm not crying, I'm like, I had my tissue box for no reason what was that this show are you not watching the show i'm not <gasps> girl no i'm sorry i cannot even talk to you right now <laughs> i'm upset i need a moment i'm so behind in television i'm so behind all my friends are like you know if you didn't read all of these other things and you stop taking on a million projects and you would have time. It's a good argument. I was going to say it's a good problem to have. When Moon and I are just watching Netflix, we're catching up. I'm like, why do we even have time right now to watch this? Is this a reflection that I'm not working hard enough? No, no. But yes, it's a very good problem to have on your end. And I'm very excited for you. And it's actually a good yeah. thing that you're not spending all that time watching stuff. I haven't even seen Stranger Things season two. Oh which my God. I know. When I say I am behind behind, I'm not talking about, oh, I'm a month behind. I'm like six months behind. (laughs) I need double the time to collect myself together. Let's start with when and how you fell in love with writing. I think that I was always in love with storytelling. I have a picture book that I wrote when I was like seven years old called The Girl with a Thousand Cats. And it was about a girl who walked across the world and cats just came out of the woodwork and followed her, which is basically my adult life. So (laughs) I feel like I was a bit of a prophet. That I wrote when I was young. And we have tons of notebooks in my parents' house full of little stories that I wrote about my cousins and my siblings and going on vacations. And I take kernels of truth in my life and expand it or how I wish that conversations and events had gone. That's fiction. I would just write it as I had wanted them to happen. So I've always been writing, but I didn't decide that I wanted to be a published writer until 2007. And I don't remember what that change was for me. I think that I just decided that I could get there, so I wanted to get there. 
And I started interacting with the writing community online and reading craft books and deciding to intentionally become a better writer versus just churning out books that all kind of stayed at the same level and not trying to improve my writing. You said when you realized you could get there. So when you said you could get there, do you remember if it was like a certain friend that you met that became an author and you're like, oh, this is really possible? I think that it was that I had ideas that when I would tell people, people would always say like, are you still writing? And I would say yes. And they'd ask what I was writing. And I started telling people ideas that they would stop and like look up from what they were doing and mm. say, oh, that sounds like a good idea versus the stuff I was writing as a teenager, which was pretty tropey, straightforward fantasy that didn't bring anything new to the genre. So I think it was when people started looking up and going, oh, that's a really interesting idea. You should write that book. And then mm. I was caught off guard. I didn't go to author panels. We didn't have that many bookstores where I grew up. We had like a Borders and a Barnes and Noble, but I don't remember any author events there. And I didn't meet any authors until I joined the online writing community. And I started at Absolute Write. That was amazing for me. Yes, I've heard of Absolute Write. People have brought this up. So is this a conference, an organization? It's an online forum. Okay. And writing community. And it has all different sub forums and discussion groups about different genres. And you could get your query critiqued there and find critique partners. And people talked about the publishing industry. They talked about agents and editors and publishing houses and who was a scam artist and who was really wonderful. And they were really honest. And that was really great. It's absolute right. Definitely gave me the start of the writing community that I wanted. It's also probably why I didn't finish a book or query for the next six years because I was really intimidated and I was, oh, I am not going to jump into the querying until I am 100% sure that I'm doing it right. And that thought for somebody like me, who's a perfectionist, was very paralyzing. Oh, wow. Yeah. Joined Absolute Right and promptly didn't finish a manuscript for six years. <laughs> so <laughs> it was great and it was terrible at the same time. I was going to say double-edged sword right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it was from there. So it really, all of this started because people believed in you before you even realized it. Yeah. Isn't that crazy when you have that support system or people who believe in you, how much of a difference that could make? And now you are a published author. Yeah. Were those your good friends or were those random people who were like, oh my God, amazing story? A combination of friends and my siblings. My siblings are wonderful. I have a brother and a sister. Both are younger than me. And my brother's also a writer. He writes poetry and short stories and he is a tough critic. When I can get him to pause and think about something that I said, oh, I'm going to write a story about this. And he goes, oh, that's good. Then I knew that I actually had a good story in my hands. You are so lucky you have (laughs) one of those weapons with you at home. It's like my middle sister. She's like a very tough critic. So if she's supportive, I know I'm going the right way. Yeah. There's also those people who are always like, oh my God, everything you do and you say is amazing. And you're like, wait, but I know I did not. I totally half-assed what I just said. Yeah. I know I could push myself further. You're so lucky you have your brother and your siblings overall. Okay. So then you discovered that online forum where it really was helpful but also paralyzing at the same time. But I'm sure you were able to meet a lot of friends on that site and build your own community. Yeah, I met Hannah Moskowitz, who's a really good friend. And I met her through Absolute Right and Suzanne Young. Hannah had maybe just Soul Break, which is her debut novel when we met on Absolute Right. But there was like a whole group. It was called The Water Cooler. 
in the YA Writers Forum. It's fun to see where everybody's ended up. And some people are self-publishing and some are New York Times bestsellers and some have won ALA awards. Somebody else is an editor. And it's fun to see where we all ended up. But I definitely met a lot of people that I'm still in touch with through that. Oh gosh, 11 years. Wow, 11 years is a long time. Yeah, I don't think I had thought of that math and that (laughs) makes me feel really old. (laughs) I know this is online. Do you ever do reunions in person to meet each other? I have met Hannah multiple times, slept over her house. She adopted one of my foster cats. So you guys are besties. Yeah, yeah. And I've met Michael once and I've never met Suzanne, but I would love to. So I've met a couple of people in person off Absolute Right, but Hannah happened to be living close to where I was going to school at the time. So it was easy for us to meet. That is incredible because you would know too, as writers, it can get really lonely and it's really difficult to find friends who understand. A lot of times, you know, writers, they grow up in families or in communities that don't understand artistry at all. So it's important to have those people who know exactly what you're going through or at least have an idea. And then you could actually talk about it. You're hitting the rough patches and hitting the good points too. You mentioned earlier about those cheerleaders versus the people that could be tougher on you. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important in a writing community to have a balance of both. I think you need those cheerleaders. I know that I need cheerleaders pretty early in my idea process. I have friends who are really wonderful. And if I bring an idea to them, they'll start poking holes in it. And I need that usually at the end of my first drafts, but not when I'm incubating an idea. And then I have other friends who are really good at being like, that sounds great. Yes. Even though they have no idea what I'm talking about yet. (laughs) And it's not a fully formed idea. I need that cheerleading early. And then at the end of the first draft, I need my friends who sit there and go, but what about this? And then your world building falls apart here. And what about this? And so I think it's really important to have a writing community that cheerleads and then also challenges you. Yes, definitely. My personality, I'm definitely the cheerleader. If I become that person who's poking the holes, I think I become a little bit too stern or brash without even realizing. So my natural comfort zone is being the cheerleader and being the person who's like, oh my God, that's amazing. I'm so proud of you. If you need an extra cheerleader, I'm right here. Excellent. Thank you. I love that you mentioned the balance and I absolutely agree with you. Just like in life overall, it almost reminds me of parenting. It reminds me of like the good parent, the bad parent, where it's like you need somebody that's more nurturing and that's not going to always make you feel like, oh gosh, I need to question what it is that I'm thinking or doing. Then you need the other parent who kind of keeps you in check. I would love to dive into The Girl with the Red Balloon, which is your book that came out in fall. Before we jump in, give us a snapshot of what you want listeners who may not have picked up your book yet to know. Sure. The Girl with the Red Balloon is the story of Ellie Baum, who is a Jewish American teenager from our time, who accidentally time travels back to 1988 East Berlin. And how she got there is related to how her grandfather escaped a death camp in 19. You shared a link in our private Facebook group and Mm -hmm. I clicked on the link and it was an article uh, written up about you and congratulations on that. That That's so exciting. Thank you. The first paragraph, it was about the title, how the idea kind of came about. And it was from that song, 99 Red Balloons. Yes. Before I read that article, it was about three, four weeks ago. Moon and I were driving in the car and the song plays. I have no idea what the title is, but then Moon catches the lyric and she's like, wait, this one's talking about red balloons or something. And she was like in the middle of reading your book. So she brought it up. She's like, do you think this has 
anything to do with it. I'm like, I highly doubt it, please. But I'll ask her. She's like, can you ask her? And then when I read the article, I was like, Moon was right. So I just had to put it out there. But let's dive into that because I think the title is so catchy. I just need to know a little bit more. Yeah. So I am a really visual writer. So ideas usually come to me in pictures in my brain. And then I decide whether it's something I want to keep or I want to mentally discard away. And I was driving to work one day and 99 Red Balloons came on the radio and it was the Goldfinger cover, which is a really great cover and everyone should look it up. I'll have it linked up. In my head, I saw this girl with a red balloon floating Mm -hmm. over a wall. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then at the end of the song, the last verse of the song, and I'm going to try to get this right, is 99 dreams I have had in every one a red balloon. It's all over and I'm standing pretty in this dust that was a city. If I could find a souvenir just to prove the world was here and here it is a red balloon, I think of you and let it go. Whoa, you memorize that? I have listened to this song a lot. <laughs> you should look into acting too. That was my weakest part. I could not memorize shit. I have a weird memory. It holds on to everything that's not actually useless, but things like, oh, do your taxes on time. That I won't remember. <laughs> so <laughs> I had heard the song many, many times, but I had never really listened to that last verse. Wow. And the combination of that image in my head, that verse, I was like, oh, this is interesting. This is a good story idea. And I was probably another 30 minutes from work. So I just brainstormed while driving, which is a really great way for me to brainstorm because as soon as I put a pen to paper or my fingers on a keyboard, my brain generally stops. I need brainstorming while I'm walking the dog or while I'm driving or while I'm showering somewhere where I can just let my brain kind of free associate. And by the time I got to work, I knew where she was going and how she got there and that it was time travel and that it was 1988 East Berlin. Like I had a fully formed idea. Wait, how long was this drive? It was a total an hour and a half. I had a really long commute. You're going to work for an hour and a half. Do you still make that drive? No, I don't. I actually ended up moving much closer to that job. Okay, damn, an hour and a half. You got everything just from that last verse. I got most of it. The first draft was only Ellie's point of view. And now there are three points of view. But I got to work and I still have this G-chat. I had just broken up with my boyfriend two weeks earlier. And I sent him a G-chat because I had always talked through stories, ideas with him. I sent him a G-chat and I was like, I know we aren't talking, (laughs) but I have this story idea and I need to run it past you. And I like typed out this whole long paragraph and it's pretty close to what the book is still. He wrote back and he was like, you need to write that. You (gasps) asked to write that. You know, my ass is going to pry. You know, the story, (laughs) you know, my personality. Uh I'm going to go right back into the story. You guys broke up and he's still able to be there for you and be encouraging about the story. Yes. And (gasps) we've gotten back together and broken up since. And he's a really wonderful person. We definitely care about each other. And he has been really, really supportive. I'm very lucky. So you guys are still in touch. Yep. You're friends. Yeah. <laughs> I have friends that are able to do that. I know. I'm that person that's like erased. I don't know who you are. <laughs> who are you? I've never met you before. What? I'm going to keep walking. I've tried that. And it just doesn't work with him. We were also friends for a long time before we started dating. It was a really different chemistry and relationship. We just went back to being friends. So we didn't have to go back to not knowing each other. Are either one of you dating new people? Does that throw off the dynamic between you two as friends? I'm not. And I don't want to know if he is. For all I know, he could be. And he's probably going to listen to this. (laughs) 
that will be weird. Okay, okay. (laughs) We love you. Thank you for encouraging her story and helping to make it happen. We appreciate you. Okay, now back to your stories. Do you want to hear the weirdest thing? Because I know that you like weird coincidences like this. So we had that conversation and because I log all of my G-chats, I can tell you we had it on February 17th, 2013. The book sold at auction on February 17th, 2016, exactly three years later. <gasps> Are you joking me? No. Oh my God, I just got chills everywhere. It was so cool. <laughs> if yeah. that's not fate, I don't know what is. Yeah, it was really cool. <laughs> that is insane. You told him this, obviously. Oh yeah. I bet he probably jokes around and is like, you know what? I'm taking credit for this. <laughs> He can take a little bit of credit for it because I think that if he had been, that's a terrible idea or had not answered my G-chat, I don't know that I would have written it. Wow. Because I was in the middle of another draft. I was in the (gasps) middle of another book and I put that down completely and dropped it for this. Wow. I'll be that middle person and be like, boom, (laughs) I'm the referee. He deserves some credit for this for sure. That's insane. Thank you for sharing that tidbit. I love, and you're so right. You know me so well. I love those facts. I know. Now back to when you were telling him before I started yeah. being the nosy old grandma neighbor, he ended up answering. I was like, that's an amazing idea. You need to go for this. And now yeah. I'm going to jump in and be nosy again. What was that other story about? If you can tell us, tell us. But if not, don't worry. Yeah, I can tell you a little bit. I think okay. that I would love to revisit it at some point. It was like a sci-fi dystopia story, but for adults. And it involved a crazy, super rich dictator making a garden that eats people and putting the cure to a plague in the center of the garden. And then my main character was this former special forces soldier who was like, I'm going to go get it. And his ex-girlfriend and his current boyfriend were just like, this is a terrible idea you're going to die. And he was like, nope, I'm going to go do it. It was really fun. I really enjoyed writing it. And I think that it's something that I could probably come back to. And I probably have the skill set now that I didn't have four or five years ago. That's definitely something I would love to revisit in the future. Nice. Okay. So does that mean that you've always been more interested in leaning more towards adult fiction rather than young adults? I have always considered myself a young adult writer. I really do think that that's part of my identity as a writer. And I just happen to also write books for adults. Before I had started that book in 20. 12, I'd finished four drafts, two sets of duologies Mm. of dystopian YA for teens. It was totally like I read Divergent and was like, I want to write that. And I wrote four of them. They aren't very good. They're never, ever, ever coming out of the trunk. (laughs) But they were really, really good exercises for me. And I learned how to finish a book. And I worked on character art. And I played a lot with setting. And that was really fun. So I see a lot of my roots in those books. And I had written three young adult books in college. I've always considered myself a YA writer. It's what I really like writing. And I just also end up dabbling in adult. You are so talented. How the hell did you write all those manuscripts? You weren't good. It does not matter, good or not. I'm still stuck sitting here talking about wanting to write a book. And I'm like, still the same damn thing that I've been talking about for how long? I used to be a really, really fast drafter. I really did. I used to be able to fast draft a book in a couple of weeks. That's not 
my reality anymore. But I used to be able to say, like, okay, I'm going to write a book this week. And I didn't have a lot else going on in my life at the time. I was pretty underemployed. I was working part-time. So I had a lot of free time and I would just sit down and write for 10 hours. Rub it in, why don't you? I'm kidding. <laughs> but it's because I had the time. So that was a privilege. There's some people who have all the time in the world and all of a sudden it's like sometimes brain freeze. Right. So I write first drafts that I throw away. I draft really fast and almost none of it's usable. The first draft of The Girl with the Red Balloon, I think I finished it in like three months. And then three sentences have survived. <gasps> Wait, you wrote yeah. from yeah. first page Nin to last page in three months, and then you only took those few sentences. 91,000 words, somewhere around there. <gasps> and I tried to revise it. I had sent it to critique partners, and they had really good feedback. And then I just was like, oh, I think I need to put it down for a while. So I put it down. I wrote a book that ended up being my debut in the meantime second position. I wrote that first, queried second position. And while I was querying second position, I picked up Girl with the Red Balloon and was like, okay, I know what I want this book to be, but it can't look like this. And I rewrote it completely. I didn't even work in the same draft. It is a really inefficient process. And that's what bothers me because I like to be efficient. Yeah, yeah. But at this point, what will be my fifth published book just went to copy edits this week. And I did the same thing. So I have just accepted that this is my process. And I think it's important that you accept that your process is one shape or another. I build that time into what I need to write a book now. So now I'm like, I'm going to write a draft. I'm going to throw it out. I'm going to write a better draft. And that's the draft I use. And I tinker and I move things around. It's kind of awful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Catherine, that's insane. But that's amazing of you as the writer to then embrace that and realizing and coming to terms with it instead of being in denial. I feel like those people who keep beating their heads against the wall saying, no, 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 this will work. This will work. Being in denial will ac actually be even less efficient and will lose even more time. So I love that you figured out your process pretty damn quickly. And you're like, you know what? I'm just going to have to add that extra time into yeah. my process, embrace it and just move forward. If I was a slow drafter, I would see where I would be like, oh no, I am changing my process. This is unacceptable. But because I'm a fast drafter, I can just say, well, I just know there will be a month of work that I have to throw out. So that's where the payoff happens. In over 115 or 120, like this is the first time I've heard where an author realizes that they naturally just have to toss out the first draft. And then that's just your process. It's part of your writing Terrible. journey. Thank you for showing us a glimpse into that. All right. So you were saying you were in the middle of another draft of another story, which is the adult sci-fi. And then this is when you told your ex that, all right, I have this idea for the girl with the red balloon. He said, amazing. So you kind of put the adult sci-fi to the side. You went back to this. You fast drafted it. 93,000 words, kept three sentences, started over. From here on out, how was that research like? Also, why did you specifically choose that storyline? What specifically made you feel tied to like historical fiction? That's a really good question. I don't think that I went into it saying like, oh, I really want to write a historical YA. I'm going to go find that idea. I always said that I wasn't going to write a time travel book because time travel is really hard. And because there's basically one author, I think, who has done time travel really well, and I haven't really enjoyed other time travel books. It was really out of the blue 
for everything that I had been writing up to that point. I had been writing just sci-fi until this. And I knew that I wanted her to time travel backwards. I wanted it to go to the past. I picked out the Berlin Wall pretty quickly and then was like, oh shit, I guess I'm writing an historical book. My major, when I was in college, I went to Allegheny College. I have a degree in political science and I studied how countries formed national identities after conflict, specifically after the collapse of the Soviet Union. I have this really bizarre political background where I know a lot about the fall of the Soviet Union. Okay. I was already aware of what was happening politically in the late 80s and early 90s. So that's why I was really interested in that time period. And from like a writing perspective, I wanted to pick a time in Berlin where the city was on the cusp of change, but wasn't there yet. So the Berlin Wall falls in November of 1989. And the January protests, which were these people protests that kind of brought around the fall of the wall, they start in January of 1989. And I knew I wanted it to happen before that. I wanted the city to feel like it was close to that, but not there. So from a writing standpoint, you get a lot of natural tension and suspense by putting your setting or your time period on the edge of conflict or the edge of change. So that's why I picked 1988. And originally, the book started in January of 1988. And I actually moved it to start in March of 1988 because I wanted to include Bruce Springsteen's concert in July <laughs> nice. of 1988 that was in East Berlin. And I was like, I want that. <laughs> I kept waiting for my agent, my editor, anyone to be like, this scene serves no purpose and you need to take it out. And no one told me that. Although it's a little bit true, that scene doesn't have a ton of purpose. And everyone was like, this is great. <laughs> it's like, okay. So it's in the final version. That's why it's set in 1988. And then I added Ellie's grandfather's point of view, Benno, in 1941, 1942 in the ghetto, because I wanted people to see that side of the story as well. I thought it was really important Benno be able to tell his own story. Ellie's relationship with her grandfather is really close to my relationship with my grandfather. So my grandfather is not a Holocaust survivor, but he was a Jewish American soldier who fought in World War II and liberated concentration camps. My Jewish side of my family, who did not leave Europe before 1924, I I think is when the immigration law changed, right? 24, 26. Those who did not leave before that point all died in the Holocaust. So my family looks back on Europe, or my grandfather particularly looked back on Europe as a place that was really personally terrible. And it's something that I have pulled into my own identity, like many, many Jewish Americans. So I really wanted to explore that, why Ellie would feel attracted to and feel at home in a place that had treated her grandfather so terribly and kind of wrestling with those feelings. How was that emotionally for you? It was easy for me to get into a space where I would have really black and white thinking about it, where Ellie was reflecting my thoughts much more than her own thoughts. And I wasn't giving the character that space to explore and kind of find some nuance, which is mm -hmm. what I wanted. And I think that when I started writing, I was looking for answers and I didn't find them. And I think that that's okay. But it took me three years of writing it to realize that it was okay not to find answers in the book. 
or in my own Mm. book, it was okay to come away with more questions. That was really powerful. A tough emotional place to be, but a really important personal place to be. Yes. Your grandpa, has he passed or is he still with us? He passed in 2011. Oh, I'm so sorry. From your family side, I'm sure they've all read your book. Yes. And how was their reaction to your book? And did they draw the similarities between grandpa's character with your grandpa? I think that they think that Bano is probably a little harsher than my grandfather was. And I think that's true. My grandfather, I have only one memory of him being angry with me. And it's because I went back to Ukraine where our family was from. And he said, like, why would you go back there? Mm -hmm. And so that's where I had been drawing from. My parents and my siblings are incredibly supportive and they love the book. I think my siblings see a lot of me in Ellie. Mm -hmm. And in terms of wrestling with that idea. And then my dad is Jewish. My mom is not. So I have an interfaith family and my dad will never own a German car. He will not visit Germany. Those are things that he has carried with him because of his father's experience and his experience growing up. So I think that he saw that as well in the book. My extended family who's read it has all loved it. I don't know that they look at it and see, oh, like Katie's talking about grandpa. I don't think that they see that. And I think that's okay. I think that I was writing a very personal moment between my grandfather and me about when I went back to Ukraine. And I went to Ukraine in 2006. And I just made that the heart of Ellie's journey. But that was just a blip in time. Overall, my grandfather and I had a much more complex and deep and a very loving relationship. When you chose to go to Ukraine, did you have a specific intention? I went back as part of a college trip. So I was there for about a month with studying the Ukrainian revolution or the orange revolution that happened the year before and or two years before at that point, and then studying Ukrainian national identity from 1991 forward. So I was with a school group, traveled around mostly in Western Ukraine. For your process of research and accuracy, did you have to do any more traveling? I have never been to Germany and I have never been to Berlin. Obviously, if I haven't been to Germany, I haven't been to Berlin. (laughs) I've flown through German airports, but I have not actually been to Germany. And I did not go in order to research this trip. I just didn't have the time or the money. And I did a lot of research. So I read books and I watched movies. I watched the lives of others. I watched newscasts, like newsreels and reports from the night the wall came down. And those are all on YouTube. And that was really great to watch and really helpful. I read personal accounts. There are a bunch of German bloggers that have really meticulously documented East German history. And they've taken photos of streets and cars and shared found photos. That was incredibly helpful. And then I did Google Maps and Google Street View and like walked down streets using Google to kind of get an idea of what things like now. I did a lot of research that I could do from here. And I hope that I get to Berlin one day, but technology is really great. I have no idea how people (laughs) wrote historical fiction before there was the internet. No idea at all. (laughs) You're right. It's like, how did people figure it out back then without all this availability so easily accessible? Suddenly, I just remembered you saying 
how you're a very visual person. Uh, and Moonlin is really curious too. I know the title is inspired by the song. What about Red Balloon? Why red? Does that symbolize anything? Wasn't there a short film that won an Oscar or something like a long time ago? Yeah, it's just called Red Balloon. It's a little French film. Yes, yes, yes. So is it supposed to symbolize anything for you and like for your book? No, I mean, I had not known about that film until well into writing the book. I think oh, it might have even sold by the time that I found out about the film. But in the song 99 Red Balloons, red is definitely a stand-in for communism. For me, I used red because that was a carryover from the song. I specifically had to say that they only use red balloons because in the book, the magic system works by blood. So the blood is less visible on red balloon than it is on other colors. So that's why in the story, they chose red because of that. And in my head, I chose it because it matched the song. So there are two different different reasons. So there's the mystery. I was actually telling Moon, I was like, you know what? But it has to do with communism. And then she's like, well, why don't you just ask? I'm like, I will ask for you. I want to make sure we have enough time also for listener questions before we move on to that. What was your most difficult moment in your life and how did you get out of that? I mentioned earlier that I didn't write for six years after I joined Absolute Write. And I mentioned that I was a perfectionist. And part of that time period was that the mild eating disorder that I had had for most of my teenage years became a pretty serious eating disorder in college. And that pretty much stopped me from writing because that took up all of my time and all of my energy. And it took me years after to realize how much energy and time being sick had taken. It was all of my thoughts and all of my emotions and all of my choices were going towards being sick. That was a long journey into that dark hole and a long journey back out. I ended up going to treatment and I was in therapy. I'm still in therapy. I think it's really great. The idea that someone has to sit there and listen to me for 50 minutes every week is fantastic. I feel the same way. I'm like, yes, you cannot talk. You listen. And you better smile while I say all this shit right now. Yep, that's me. That was a really dark period of my life and it took away creativity and travel and a lot of things that I really enjoyed. And I... I'm really glad that I'm not there anymore, but it did take being out of it to see how dark it was. I couldn't see how terrible it was when I was in that space. When was that moment that you realized you needed to go into treatment? I was away at college. So I had been reported as a student in crisis by professors. What made them want to report it? I'm actually not entirely sure still. I think that I had lost weight and I think that I was not the student that they had seen in previous years. Gotcha. I think, you know, I wasn't paying attention and I was really obsessive about a lot of different things that I had not been because I got more obsessive about everything when I got more obsessive about my weight. So I think that they reported me as a student in crisis and that really changed the trajectory of deciding, okay, what I've been doing so far has not worked and I need to make a conscious effort to get out. And that really didn't start until I got out of college and I moved to Philadelphia and found a really great therapist and was able, with her help, to climb out of that hole. But it took several years after deciding to get out. So it's been a process and it required every day I had to choose to recover 
And whenever I'm stressed and whenever I'm tired, I still have to actively choose to recover now. Thank you for sharing that. I know that's very personal and very private. I do appreciate that. I'm sure there are listeners who understand and perhaps have gone through it or may be going through it now and probably is something that they needed to hear at this moment. So thank you for that. Thanks. For sure. It's like just always actively choosing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's not easy. It's active work. So I applaud you. And I think you're so freaking badass. Are you the type of person, would you ever feel gravitated towards writing about your experiences and like what you went through? So I wrote three romance books um, before I wrote The Girl with the Red Balloon and Second Position, Turning Point, Finding Center. The main character Allie in those books has an eating disorder and she talks about it and she goes to therapy. There are therapy sessions throughout the book. And that I think is as close as I would ever get to it. I don't know that I found the books cathartic to write, but I'm really proud that I wrote about them and that I put those in a romance novel and Mm -hmm. that somebody who is recovering and recovered gets a romance as well and that she gets a partner who is very supportive and very kind and very understanding and i think that for me at that time but i don't know that i wrote it about me does that make sense definitely okay. Okay. i got you do you mind if we go into listener questions yes please i awesome. love them okay so we have the first question from jessica james she wrote yay i love the girl with the red balloon it's very clear that you did your homework with all of the history the different eras each felt so vivid how did you approach your research for the project and how did you approach change when you started work on book two okay so we covered the part about research but i love the question about how you're approaching the change when you started on book two can you give us a little bit of insight on that? Yeah. So book two takes place in 1943 during the Manhattan Project. I had a pretty big gap between writing book one and starting book two. So Mm -hmm. I didn't have a problem changing gears and changing research, but I learned how to research in book one and I was able to apply that to book two. So I know that I do kind of a surface level read before I start writing. I make sure I know major actors dates, times, places, the shape of what happened in history. And then I write a book and then I go back and do the research about the clothes they wore and the food that they ate and how they spoke and slang and what cars looked like and what signs were on the street. And I do all of that afterwards because I want to make sure that the heart of my story and my characters isn't affected by my need to get something historically accurate. I can add the historical accuracy afterwards, and I've never had a problem working that in. I just want to make sure that I get the story out first. That was so juicy. (laughs) Jessica also asked if you have any tips for writers new to the historical fantasy genre. And I feel like you gave pretty good advice already, like they could pick up quite a lot. But if there's anything else you want to add, please feel free. Sure. I think that you need to figure out how much your fantasy element changes your historical elements. And anything you change in history, you have to really, really justify. You can't just be like, well, it's inconvenient for me to have windows made from this material. So I'm just going to pretend that they got windows faster. They made them out of glass sooner than they ever did in history. You have to really justify those things. If you want magic to change something, it has to be relevant to your plot and your world building. And that ripple effect has to be seen throughout. So if magic makes clothes, then 
you need to say, okay, does are they magical sheep that ha- make magical wool? Okay, do magical sheep eat magical grass? Like, how far back is the magic? How did you build that? Are the people who card the wool and the people who make yarn or the people who weave, are those all magic users because they're using a magical object? So, how much does this change your world building and your power structure? If just the people using magical wool have magic or the ability to use magic, then they're probably going to be more powerful and your entire system and your world changes. So, thinking about all the ripple effects of magic and history. Thank you so much, by the way, for giving actual examples. That's super helpful. I hope no one makes fun of me for a magical wool because that's all I think about. All I'm thinking about is craving a game of Settlers of Catan. As soon as you said yeah. sheep, I was like, yes, I will trade you sheep for ore. Let's go. But would you want to trade sheep if sheep were magical and the ore wasn't? That's different. Now that we're talking about magical sheep, I'm like, no, I'm the sheep queen. I'm keeping yeah. all of my sheep. I'm never See, letting it go. I'm hoarding it all of it. Settlers. It would change settlers <laughs> completely. I love that you brought those examples. Okay, so the next person we have is Jenna Jape Rensel. I hope I pronounced her maiden name correctly. Jape? She says she cannot wait for this interview. She's super excited. We have Katie Gardner who asked, when writing this, what did you struggle with the most? The first draft to the second draft was really hard. I had a hard time finding the heart of the story and Girl with the Red Balloon. I had this weird circus scene for like 10,000 words in the middle of the book. Inexplicably, there was crazy stuff happening in the first draft. So I had a hard time figuring out how to tell the story I wanted to tell. And then in the second draft, which is essentially the one that was published, the hardest part was writing Benno's point of view and everything that he experiences in the ghetto. Emotionally, that was really, really hard. And I dreaded editing those. Luckily, we didn't have to heavily edit them much. They really just got copy edited. And I really didn't even want to reread them because they were so emotionally hard for me. How did you get through it? I whine a lot on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would work on a piece of it and then I would complain on Twitter and then I would work on a piece of it and then I would complain on Twitter and it sounds really funny and it is like I laugh at myself but it really did help me like go okay I'm going to get myself through this and finish writing these really hard scenes and there are a lot of people on Twitter who have followed the girl with the red balloon for five years now and they probably remember those moments when I was like, oh, I have to write a ghetto scene now. I'm going to go clean my room and scrub the bathroom and buy all my groceries and go clothes shopping and pay my taxes because I would do anything to not sit down and write those scenes. And they're very small parts of the book. It's a total of maybe 10,000 words out of 88,000 words. And those were the hardest 10,000 to write. To see again how important it is to have a community there. I love you, Twitter. I love (sighs) my God. Seriously, huge (laughs) shout out to at Twitter. Yes. No shout out to actually at Twitter. That's true. That's true. Or Twitter support or Jack. Just people on Just Twitter. people <laughs> on Twitter. Your people on Twitter. My people on Twitter. Huge shout out to them. And thank you guys all for being there for Catherine during her process. You all are amazing. I'm so glad that they showed up and were there for you. Now, the next question is from Benny Long. The first question Benny asked, what have you learned the most from 88 cups of tea? So this is already like kind of embarrassing for me to ask to even like say that. But I am curious, is there anything from our show that you feel like has helped in any way? I love Thursdays, specifically 
because that's when 88 cups of tea new episodes go up and my commute becomes like 150% less horrible. January has been really long, Yin. (laughs) It's been really long. I'm so sorry. (laughs) No, I mean, you need to take care of you. I'm just letting you know. I'm so excited. It's going to be February. I really liked Beth Revis's episode. Oh, I yes. loved Victoria Schwab's episode. Oh my God, it yes. felt like I was eavesdropping on <laughs> two best friends chit-chatting. <laughs> and I love eavesdropping. That was really great. She's amazing. Yeah, those are two really, really top, top of my list. I'm so happy. Thanks, Benny, for asking this question, even though I'm mortified asking it at the same time. I was like, what could be embarrassing? I didn't remember a question would be embarrassing. Oh, there was like no humility in this. And I was like, so tell me, tell me how you feel about it. Because it's like, oh my God. No, seriously, I get like the alert on my phone and it's like, there's a new idiot. I'm like, oh, gotta stop everything. And sometimes it's been at work and I'm always like, what do we think the chances are that I can listen to this at And the chances are not good. So I always have to wait for my commute. Catherine, thank you for that. That seriously just made my month. No joke. And now before I blow my head up even more, I better move to the next question. We have Catherine Maria. We did cover this part. I liked her second part of the question. First question that we already answered. She said, what drew you to historical and to this time period? Now, her second question was, what has surprised you about publication? And do you have any advice for people who struggle with revising? Sure. So what surprised me about publication? Yes. The wrong answer is that not a lot surprised me because I was really, really well prepared by the friends who have been published ahead of me. They were very good about making sure I knew what I was getting into. The thing that they told me and that I was sure that I understood, but I didn't really understand until I was in it, was how hard it is to write your second book while also promoting and editing and getting reviews in for your first book. That was a real challenge. The Spy with the Red Balloon has been a really challenging book because I didn't realize how emotionally drained I would be after doing all of the Girl with the Red Balloon stuff that I felt like I didn't have enough to put into Spy. That was really hard. I would say that was challenging. Maybe not a surprising as much as challenging. And I had been warned it would be like that, but it was a whole new experience to actually be living it. What are you doing actively to try to get through that emotional drainage? I limited my social media time. People would laugh at because it looks like I'm on all the time. But I actually have gotten a lot better about just going on for a little bit at night. And I try not to check social media before I'm done writing for the day. I don't read the news before I write my words for the day because the politics for the last... 15 Mm, months or so. mm -hmm. That has also been incredibly draining. I realized that if I read the news, I'm going to be so angry that I'm just storming around and that I (laughs) don't have enough for me to go into my book and write my book. That's how I got through and found more space and more love for Spy, which I'm really happy I did because I really love that book, but it did take a long time to get there. This is super micro questions. I love knowing these things. I know Victoria Schwab, she just posted something that I thought was so powerful. And it made me think about a lot of things that I do, like rituals per day, every single morning.
morning, what do you do to battle and grasp or try to push through certain blocks and trying to deal with whether it's anxiety or anything like that. For her, she has a toast for breakfast and it's like with peanut butter and bananas. For her, that's very comforting. And that's just a really powerful grounding way to start her day, to give her that reminder that there's that sameness, that there's that consistency through her daily life. One of our listeners, Patrice Caldwell, I think she jumped in on that Twitter thread and wrote something like, for her, it's absolutely the same cup of tea. Literally a week before Victoria posted that, I was talking to Moon. I was like, yo, sometimes I wake up and I'm feeling like shit and I just don't want to deal with the day or I just don't have any excitement about the day. But I noticed like when we come down for breakfast, she'll put it on this bar stool. But when you sit on that side of the kitchen island, you're facing inside looking at the kitchen and everything is metal. For me, I almost feel like I'm in jail and it just kind of ruins my day. As minor as that sounds, if I just turn around and sit on the wooden farm style table, there's access to look at this beautiful green lawn of this gorgeous golf course. And it just brightens my day. Simple things like that, having breakfast and having that side peripheral view of the golf course changes my entire mood. And I just feel like I can conquer the day. For you going through this, now jumping into book two, is there anything that you notice in your life, in the mornings, like what Victoria and Patrice were saying that you do that help you? I'm a creature of habit. So I have the same Starbucks drink every morning. Oh, what is it? It's a venti no water chai. It's ridiculous. I love chai lattes so much. They're in my author bio. They're right there next to cats. <laughs> I mean, that is serious business for me. It's probably the chai latte. I write outside the house. I write in Barnes & Noble a lot. It's about 20 minutes from my house. And that is a place where I know that if I'm going there with a laptop, I'm going there to write. So it helps put my brain in kind of the right setting. I love Barnes & Noble too. But then I notice when I go there, I try to get work done. Wi-Fi is kind of shitty. It's the worst. But that's why I go there. Oh, that's smart. Because the internet is so slow that Twitter can't load. So I have no excuse. I'm there trying to upload episodes. I'm like, what in the hell? I'm like, this is not going up. Not Good. Are you writing in those cozy corners with like the random chairs or like on the floor in between bookshelves or are you near the Starbucks side? My Barnes & Noble really has one giant farmhouse style table that's enormous and it's right by the windows and it's really cold. So I can write there in the summer, but not in the winter because I live somewhere where there's weather. Yen. <laughs> <laughs> Changing um, of seasons, woman. Yeah. <laughs> There's snow outside the window right now. I missed that East Coast vibe. Jumping into the next question that Catherine Maria had. She's wondering, do you have any advice for people who struggle with revising? So revision is where I think you discover your story. And I find it easier to go into revision with a plan. So I usually read through my story start to finish without making any notes in the document. I just read straight through. You can send it to your Kindle or your Nook if you think that you're not going to be able to resist leaving notes for yourself. And I make a list of everything that I want to fix. It'll be little something like add a nose ring for character X or pull out this entire subplot so they can be big or little. And then I write it all out on a list. And then I put that list in order. And I always start with the changes to the document that are going to be most structural. So if I'm pulling out a subplot or adding a character's point of view, I always do those first and then go and do little things like the dates on chapters or this character's hair color or making sure that only one character shrugs all the time because my characters definitely shrug 
too much. <laughs> um, so like something like that, that I always go big to small. It's really, really tempting to go through and go small to big because it'll make you feel like you're checking things off a list really quickly, but you'll end up having to redo a lot of that work because you've left everything rewriting an entire chapter or rewriting a whole subplot till the very end. And that's exhausting. So I recommend doing that first. So then you can kind of whiz through the smaller stuff. That was really good. So Caleb John Lawson wrote in all caps. Oh my God, I'm so excited. (laughs) He's so sweet. And then he continues to write. I would love to know who Catherine's favorite authors are. What are your favorite books? and how they've influenced your style and content. Also, how much input or creative control did or do you have in the cover design and overall book design? There's only one author that I really love how she handled time travel. Wait, wait, can I guess? Yes. Audrey Neffenegger? No. Interesting. Should I read her book? She wrote The Time Traveler's Wife. Oh, no. I. Oh, you do not sound impressed. You're like, "Uh, nah, girlfriend. (laughs) No, I just, that was not a book that appealed to me super well. So I have actually never picked it up. Oh, um, okay. I'll you know, it's just sorry, not my just broke my heart. Okay, I literally still have tear stains in the book. Oh my gosh. But that was also when I was much younger. I think going into college, my reading has changed a lot. I don't like a lot of books that I used to love. Yeah. You know. The guess was not correct. So who is yours? Connie Willis's time travel books, starting with the Doomsday book, oh. are just outstanding. They're just really, really fantastically done books. Favorite authors... Victoria Schwab, Lee Bardugo, Aaron Morgenstern. I don't think I'd be a writer without Madeline Langle and Jane Yolen. Fran Wilde is somebody that I read her books and I'm like, oh, I have to really level up. So that's a really fantastic feeling. Fran and I are friends in real life. So that's also really cool. Alex London, Patrick Ness. I could probably keep going, but those are probably the authors that have an influence on how and what I write. Elizabeth Wine and Rachel Hartman and E.K. Johnston, three more, are all people who like, because of what they write, I feel it improving and changing the what I write, which is really amazing. That's such a gift that one writer can give to another. And then I have writers that I just really enjoy reading like Marie Lu and Stephanie Perkins. I just really love them. Thank you so much. We're going to have those listed in your show notes page so people can check it out. Oh my gosh. I like my show notes page. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I feel like that's a writer bucket list. Yes. Now, Caleb also asked, how much input slash or creative control did or do you have in the cover design and overall book design? I had a lot of input on my cover, which I am really incredibly grateful to Albert Whitman, my publisher. And they didn't have to give me that. Like My contract does not say that I have veto power over a cover. Only had to consult with me. And they sent me three different designs and asked me which one that I you know, did I like any of them? Did I like one more than the others? And there were two that I liked and one that I loved. We started working on the one that I loved and it turned into my cover now. And so they're going to use that as the model for book two's cover. And I was really, really lucky that they would send it to me and my agent and I would say, okay, good, but it needs more gray. And they would go back and they'd fix it and they'd bring it back and they'd did that a couple of times. So I was really lucky. That is so exciting and so much fun. 
Yeah, it was how cool. powerful did you feel like going back and forth with that? The creative input, you know what I mean? It's like, yes, like because it's your story and sometimes it's scary. That's why it just surprises me when authors aren't normally are not given input for the covers. Yeah. For me, I need to know everything that's happening in my life. I need to be like the person that's in control, driving the wheel. So it just baffles me when I'm like, wait, you like some have like zero control, like zero. And I'm like, <gasps> I would panic. I'm so happy to hear that you had such amazing input. It's one of those things where I'm a control freak. So lots of parts of publishing are hard for me because I will, I have to give up control. And it was one of those things that I had mentally prepared myself to give up some control. But I also know that what I'm good at is writing a book. How to make that book sell and to stand out on a shelf is actually not what I'm good at. That's not my expertise. And somebody else is an expert in that. So I was pretty ready to say, I understand if they come and they say, we know that historical fiction sells with this type of cover, I would have been like, okay, thank you. I appreciate it. So I was just really lucky that I got the amount of input that I had. And I am incredibly grateful for it. Vanessa Andrew, she wanted to say this is awesome. Catherine is awesome. Everything about this is awesome with the starry eyed (laughs) emoji. I know we touched on revision, but she has a specific question about revision, which is, do you have any tips for drafting and revising the dreaded middle? Yes. Middles are incredibly hard. And the key is to learn how to slog through. It was before I started The Girl with the Red Balloon. It's when I was working on that adult sci-fi. Melinda Lowe was giving out writing advice on Twitter. And I asked her about the middle. And she was like, you have to learn how to slog through. Every writer has to do this. You have to learn how to slog through. And I took a screenshot and then (laughs) taped it to my computer. Because... That meant a lot to me because Melinda Lowe is, oh my God, she is a goddess. I also really needed to hear that. And it was like a little bit of tough love. Like you just have to learn how to slog through the middle. And that's with drafting. And with revision, my key when I look at the middle is where is it obvious that I'm slogging? So where does the tension and where do the stakes drop? And how can I up the tension and up the stakes for my characters? In drafting, I slog through. And then when I know I'm revising, I go back and I look for the places where it's obvious that I'm slogging. And I'm just like, get to the next scene, get to the next scene. And I'm just making up some crap. And I cut all that out. That is very helpful. I have a feeling that Vanessa is going to end up typing out and transcribing what you just said and then printing that transcription out. Next, we have Sarah Harvey who wrote, yay! Okay, she just wanted to jump in and say yay and show her support. And then we have- so sweet. That's amazing that you recognize these people. Heather Tran, she wrote, yay, Katie, I'd like to know how you reward yourself after hitting your writing goals. Also, any tips for keeping cats off your keyboard while writing? So I know Heather in real life because she adopted one of my foster cats. I rescued this emaciated, abused, neglected Persian cat. And Heather and her girlfriend ended up fostering her and then adopting her. And they are wonderful. And they take care of this very high maintenance Persian (laughs) cat now. So that's why she was asking because Perry is addicted to lying on computers. Oh, she's really cute. You should go check out Heather's Instagram because she has pictures of the Muppet cat. 
I feel like I've seen her Instagram because I think we were doing posts in our group yeah. sharing our Instagram handles. There were like a few people who had some really cute cat photos and I think yeah. Heather's one of them. That's Perry and Heather's wonderful and you should definitely all be following her. I think the first question was how do I reward myself? Yes, after hitting your writing goals. So I try to buy myself like a little gift that reminds me of a book when I finish writing a book. And I really like this. So I have like a little piece of art that I found on Etsy that some artist put up. It's out of her sketchbook of a red balloon floating over like a gray city. And I was like, it's meant to be. And I bought myself that after I finished the first draft of The Girl with the Red Balloon. And then I have bought myself like little figurines or pieces of art or music that means something special to me after finishing a book. So that's usually what I do. I never even thought of that. And also how freaking coincidental about that Etsy. It was so cool. I remember finding it and like writing her this long note about how it was related to my book. And she also wrote me back like this long note and it was really like a cool moment. That's so amazing. So now you have a new friend from Etsy. Next we have, and I see Heather Tran writing cat cafes, which is super funny. Let's see, Laura O'Dunn Sibson wrote, go Katie, in all caps with lots of exclamation marks. And then she continued to write, I'd love to hear how you balance writing projects across different genres and age groups simultaneously. This is a great question. So I try to have one project in brainstorming, one project in drafting, and one project in revisions at any time. And that's just because my brain jumps around. So I might as well give it constructive things to jump around on. Those can be anything. So like right now, I am brainstorming a short story, writing a middle grade, and revising a short story. So those are three different things. I try not to have all three of those things be in the same genre. So I don't write three fantasy things at the same time. I don't write three middle grade things at the same time or three YA things at the same time. Just because then my voices and my thoughts get too crossed. So I try to keep those as three distinct things. And in terms of jumping or people like often ask me like, okay, so you write YA and you write for adults. How do you know that something's going to be for a YA or is going to be for an adult? It's who I'm writing it for. So if I'm writing a book for 16-year-old me or a book that I think would appeal to 16-year-old me, that's a YA book. If I'm writing a book that I think would appeal to 25-year-old me, that's an adult book. That's kind of how I know what I'm writing and how to tailor it to that specific category. I write across pretty much anything from age 8 and up I'm interested in writing in. You're so pro. (laughs) I'm almost getting anxiety and stressing out. I am a writer who has a lot of ideas and always has a lot of projects. That doesn't work for everyone. If you have one idea and that's what you need to give 110% of your writing energy to, that's great. It's just important that writers know what their own process is. You need to be a teacher if you haven't even looked into that yet. When you have the time in the future, (laughs) I feel like you'd be really good at guiding students. Now, before I get carried away, next question we have from Elliot Womack, and this is the second to last comment. So Elliot Womack asked, how do you balance how you engage on social media? I know we covered this and now you mentioned that it's kind of like needing to step away. Sure. Elliot also asked, how do you navigate any needs for privacy or personal space with your online presence? So anything that jumps at you, please share. I have an online presence that is very, very honest and very, very political. And I have not changed that as a result of becoming a published author. And whether or not that 
remains true going forward, I don't know. Um, I have not been asked to change anything about my social media presence to date, which I really appreciate because sometimes I'm just waiting for my agent to be like, hey, maybe say fuck less on Twitter. But so far, she hasn't seemed to mind. I'm probably going to get an email about that now. I just cursed myself for getting it. You just put it out in the universe right now. So um, I have not needed to change or, or tailor my online presence to be different than my persona. I am just careful about not talking about publishing stuff on Twitter that I should not talk about publishing stuff. So mm-hmm. I'll talk about like my congressional representative is an absolute idiot. And I am really excited to vote him out. And I'll talk about that and I'll curse, but I'm not going to be like, here's some behind the scenes publishing stuff that's not great. Or I heard this because that A is not constructive and B puts my career in jeopardy. That can actually affect my career much more than me saying fuck on Twitter. I am careful about that type of stuff. And in terms of like personal, like whether I talk about mental illness or anything like that, I talk about it because I can and I know there are people who can't. So I am more open with things because I hope that it creates empathy and space for people who can't be as out or open about personal things as I can be. So that's a place where I try to use my position and my privilege, especially as a white person, to say, you know, lots of people have mental illness. It is not a white person specific thing. Don't forget that. And I can talk about all of this and I can try to create space. And I hope that I am creating space, not taking up space. But that's something where I am more out and more personal with things because I want people to be more empathetic about the people who aren't able to be out and who are just watching and listening and who exist out there. We don't know what struggles they're going through. I'm sure Elliot's going to love those answers. Now, the last and final, we have Melody Simpson. She wrote, ah, Katie! Like, oh my gosh, I can't even I count the her. amount of exclamation marks. I'm like guessing about 50 at least. <laughs> that was so sweet of Melody. And so I just wanted to wrap it up with that final, amazing, excited comment and cheer for you. Melody's wonderful. Catherine, you've been so awesome. Thank you for always being there for our group for this show. Let me know where listeners can find you on social media. So people can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Bibliogato, which is B-I-B-L-I-O-G-A-T-O. And you can find me on Facebook at Catherine Locke Books, but mostly you'll find me on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you so much, Catherine. You're so awesome. Thank you. I loved having you on. Thank you so much. And that wraps up our episode with Catherine Locke. Catherine, you are so awesome. Thank you so much for a wonderful discussion and for being so thoughtful and generous with our 88 Cups of Tea community. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in as always. Please show some love to Catherine on Twitter at Bibliogato and head over to her show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Catherine dash Locke. For our writers, don't forget to scroll all the way to the bottom of Catherine's show notes page to grab your download of her exclusive 88 Cups of Tea writing prompt to help you push past writer's block. As a reminder, head over to our Instagram account today to watch Catherine's Instagram takeover at instagram.com slash 88 Cups of Tea. You'll get a sneak peek of her life as a writer and pay close attention to the information about her special giveaway. 
I'll be moderating a panel called Seven Asian American Authors You Should Be Reading, hosted by the New York Public Library and features authors Stacey Lee, Rhoda Baeza, Sona Charapatra, Emily X. R. Pan, Karuna Riazi, and two of our very own 88 Cups of Tea guests, Heidi Heilig and Jenny Hahn. It's all happening in my hometown in New York this Saturday, February 17th at 1 p.m. at the Chatham Square Library location. For all of my New York and East Coast listeners, I would love to meet you and see you there. Again, that's this Saturday, February 17th at 1 p.m. at the Chatham Square Library location. If you join us, make sure to come up and say hi after we finish the panel so I know you're part of our 88 Cups of Tea community. If you're unable to make it but would still love to watch us, we'll be live streaming from New York Public Library's Chatham Square Library's Facebook page. On February 17th at 1 p.m., head over to facebook.com slash Chatham Square Library to watch us live. If you enjoyed today's episode or if it helped you in any way, I would love to ask you for your support in taking a moment to subscribe to 88 Cups of Tea on iTunes. And please leave a rating and a review. Producing a podcast takes a lot of time, and we put a lot of heart and soul into making 88 Cups of Tea the best that it can be. When you take those specific actions of subscribing, leaving a rating and a review that really helps our show become more visible to new listeners who haven't heard of us before, and we're really trying to get the word out about our podcast. Thank you so much in advance for helping us grow our community. Don't forget to join our private Facebook group if you want to hang out with fellow writers and listeners from 88 Cups of Tea. I am so excited to see you in there. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 Cups of Tea. Have a wonderful and super productive rest of your week, and I'll catch you next Thursday. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.